Let us pray. Almighty God, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, the whole story of Israel is relived in the life of Jesus, the true Israel. In the first four chapters, Matthew's already shown the birth of Jesus to be a new genesis, a new creation. He has also shown Jesus to be a new Moses, attacked in his infancy by the new Pharaoh, King Herod, sheltered by his parents, fleeing for refuge. Once he has grown, the new Moses then passes through a new Red Sea as he is baptized in the Jordan. And Jesus is then cast into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days, all tracking right along with the Old Testament book of Exodus. And so now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see the new Moses ascending to a new Mount Sinai to deliver a new Torah, a new book of a new covenant, what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. At the first Sinai, it was God who opened his mouth and spoke the ten words to Israel, what we call the Ten Commandments. Israel trembled to hear the voice of God. They begged Moses, do not let God speak to us lest we die. But now, in Matthew's Gospel, at this new Sinai, Jesus is the one who opens his mouth. He takes the place of God in this dialogue. He speaks for God because he is God. He speaks God's word who is God's word. In these last days, writes the author of Hebrews, God has spoken to us by his Son, And now in Jesus, at this new Sinai, God speaks a better word than at the first Sinai. Here God speaks not in prohibitions, not in thou shalt nots. Now in his Son, God speaks benediction. God speaks words of blessing. God speaks what we call the Beatitudes, from the Latin word for blessing. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eight Beatitudes, seven plus one, a week plus a new day, fitting for a new creation. Are you intrigued by these Beatitudes? Are you pondering the portrait that Christ paints? Wouldn't you like to live among this people of blessing? Wouldn't you like to dwell in such a kingdom as the one Christ describes? 
Now these Beatitudes seem a far cry from our own society, which is often characterized by pride and, and conflict and greed on all sides. Again, I say, Jesus on the mountain speaking these eight Beatitudes, it reminds us of God speaking the ten words to Israel at Mount Sinai. Now the Ten Commandments were, were not merely a list of do's and don'ts. They too were a vision. They envisioned a new kind of community, a new kind of society, a society of righteousness, of, of justice, of faithfulness, of honesty, of love for God and for neighbor. Now isn't our Lord doing something similar in his Beatitudes? Isn't he giving us a vision of a new world? He's describing this society of the blessed. He's casting a vision for a heavenly kingdom. But who is his audience? Who is Christ speaking to when he speaks these beatitudes? Who are the people who will hear the king's blessing? Who are the people who will receive the king's reward? I want you to remember these beatitudes, they're not, uh, not, they're not vague aphorisms. They're not just maxims that are like so broad and so universal and so timeless that in the end they can kind of take on whatever meaning we want to give to them. You can't cut the beatitudes out of their original context. You can't put a hashtag blessed in front of them and then slap them on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, right? Not if you want to really understand what Jesus is doing here. So never forget these Beatitudes were spoken by the very lips of Jesus. They were given life by the breath from his lungs. They were spoken in the Aramaic language, carried by the salt sea air of Galilee, and they fell on the dusty ears of fishermen and tax collectors and shepherds and scribes. The Beatitudes were spoken to the lost sheep of Israel, a people who were already supposed to be the blessed people, the sons of Abraham, the heirs of the covenant. They were spoken to the people of Israel who were already subjects of a kingdom, the Herodian dynasty under the authority of the Roman Empire. But when Jesus came to this people, they were not a people receiving God's blessing. When Jesus came to this kingdom, it was not a kingdom that could in any way be described as heavenly. And indeed, that is why Christ came. You see, when Christ came, the people of Israel, and we're talking specifically about the religious and political leaders of Israel, the people who were supposed to be leading and shepherding Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the council, the imposter kings, the Herods. When Christ came, these people were not people of blessing. They were not the heavenly kingdom. And so each beatitude is an implied criticism of the leaders of Israel at that time. Now, indeed, if you were to go to Luke's gospel, there in chapter 6 of Luke, you would find that the three Beatitudes are paired with three woes against the leaders of Israel. Now, Matthew is going to make us wait until chapter 23 of his gospel to hear Jesus' woes against the scribes and Pharisees. 
But I believe we will understand the Beatitudes better in chapter 5 if we read the woes of chapter 23 in between their lines. And so that's what I will do today. You see, the political and religious leaders of Israel were anything but poor in spirit. They were not meek. These phrases have to do with humility, with being aware of your own lack, your dependence upon God. But Jesus later says of the leaders of Israel, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love being honored in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They were not poor in spirit. The leaders of Israel were not those who mourn, meaning who repent over their own sin and over the injustice and oppression around them. Instead, Jesus later says, they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They are not repenting over the injustices of the world. They are inflicting them. The leaders of Israel were not hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they had already devoured widows' houses, Jesus says, and glutted themselves on offerings meant for God. He later says of them, they are full of greed and of self-indulgence, not hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The leaders of Israel were not merciful. Jesus later says that they would tithe mint and dill and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, which he says are justice and mercy and faithfulness. They would sooner choose murder than mercy. They were not the pure in heart. Jesus later says they are whitewashed tombs, seeming pure on the outside, but within they are full of death. He says full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were not peacemakers. No, to the contrary, they were plotters and insurrectionists. They were oath-breakers and assassins. The leaders of Israel were not those who are persecuted. They were the persecutors. They persecuted the prophets God sent them, Jesus says. He says they always have, and they would continue to do so as we see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. These were the people of Israel to whom Christ came. This was the state of their hearts and the state of their kingdom. They were not a people receiving God's blessing. They were not a heavenly kingdom. And that is why Jesus came. And that is why he speaks these beatitudes. Because a great reversal was needed. A blessed kingdom to replace the cursed one. A righteous king to supplant the wicked. A holy high priest to cleanse the corrupt. A new creation to descend upon the old. And, and so you see, each of these beatitudes, they contain a promise of this great reversal in the story of Israel. This unexpected turn, what Tolkien calls a catastrophe. For the blessed people... In the heavenly kingdom, those who mourn shall be comforted. Those who are outcast will inherit the land. Those who are hungry will be satisfied. 
those who are persecuted shall be praised. It is this great reversal that the saints of old sang about. It's the song that Jesus' own mother sang over him, as we see in the Gospel of Luke. Mary sings, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now in the Beatitudes, Jesus sings this great reversal too. And all the way through this gospel, he sings it. In the last chapters, he sings, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But singing is not enough. Right? The prophets of old spoke this song. The mothers of Israel sang this song. Jesus' own mother sang it. But to actually accomplish this great reversal, to birth the blessed people, to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, God had to send a living, breathing beatitude to his people. The song must take on skin. The word must take on flesh. And so what we come to find is that Jesus himself is the embodiment of these beatitudes. Jesus is the one blessed by God, and Jesus is the blessing God gives. Jesus is the only true king from heaven, and Jesus is himself the kingdom of heaven. Walk through these beatitudes. Was Jesus poor in spirit? Was Jesus meek? Meek does not mean timid or slight, as we often use it. To be poor in spirit, to be meek, meant being humble, not prideful, depending on God's provision. So what could show more poverty of spirit than the Son of God pouring himself out, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of man? The heavenly king taking on the tattered rags of the suffering servant. Jesus was poor in spirit, and for his poverty, the Father gave him the riches of the kingdom. Was Jesus one who mourns? Did the Son of God mourn over the state of the world? That's the idea here, mourning over sin. It can be mourning and repentance over one's own sin, but here it's more about grief over this fallen world, over the injustice and oppression and wickedness of all humanity. And Jesus was a mourner in this sense. Matthew later says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. John shows us that he who had the power to raise Lazarus also wept over Lazarus's tomb. Think of the end of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus laments over Jerusalem because he longed to gather them into his arms like a mother hen, but was rejected by them instead. To be sure, Jesus was a mourner. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Was Jesus one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness? 
Was Jesus pure in heart? Well, Jesus was righteousness itself. Purity throughout. Jesus was without sin. He was always doing what is right, what is pleasing to the Father. He's the image of the invisible. He is the pure heart of God. And Jesus is also the bread come down from heaven who satisfies our hunger. Jesus is the living water who eternally slakes our thirst. And so Jesus is himself the satisfaction of the blessed. Was Jesus merciful? Well, pay attention as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew. You'll see how Jesus shows mercy. Eating with tax collectors and sinners, those rejected by the leaders of Israel. Notice how many times the the blind and the sick and the afflicted will call out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. Just as we pray in our prayers each Sunday. And each time Jesus sees them. And he reaches out to them and he heals them and he forgives their sins. That is how Jesus shows mercy. Not only that, but think of the mercy he showed by offering himself on the cross that we all might receive mercy instead of condemnation. Yes, Jesus is the merciful one. Was Jesus a peacemaker? The Apostle Paul says Jesus is our peace. That he has broken down in his flesh the wall of hostility that divides mankind. Not only mankind, but Paul also says Jesus has made peace between God and man. He has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Yes, Jesus is a peacemaker, both peace offering and peacemaker. Jesus, the true Son of God. Was Jesus persecuted for righteousness' sake? Need we do anything more than look to the cross? And so, when Jesus speaks these Beatitudes, He speaks what He Himself already is. Jesus was the Beatitudes in flesh, walking amongst the lost sheep of Israel. He was the truly blessed One. The one who received God's blessing as the only faithful Israelite. Jesus, the King of the heavenly kingdom. And because Jesus lived these things, because He lived them for His people on their behalf, for their salvation, Jesus is also able to call His people to follow Him in the pathway of the Beatitudes. And that's also what these Beatitudes are. They are a call to live like Jesus. Because Jesus has fulfilled these things perfectly, because He has received the blessing of the Father, because He has been given the keys to the kingdom, Jesus now creates a new creation. He blesses with a new blessing. He founds a new kingdom. And He calls His disciples to follow Him into this new kingdom. He calls us to follow in His footsteps. And so Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus makes this call more personal. He transitions out of the third person, theirs is, they shall, those who, into the second person. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's talking to the disciples whom he has only recently called to follow him. And he's talking to you. And he's talking to me who follow him still 2,000 years later. You see how Jesus' disciples identify with him? It's on his account that they will be persecuted, he says. They are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Persecuted for the sake of the righteous one. Just as the righteous one was persecuted for their sake. You see, disciples of Jesus are to so align themselves with him, so identify with him, so imitate him, that they can expect to receive the same treatment he receives. And there's kind of a downside to that, as well as a positive one. There is both a downside and an upside to such a union with Jesus, the living beatitude. And the downside is this. If the leaders of Israel revile the righteous one, they will revile those who follow him. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute his disciples. And that's precisely what we see in the book of Acts. Union with Jesus means union with poverty with mourning, with meekness, with hunger, with thirst. All the first half of these Beatitudes. Union with Jesus means union with his humiliation, his humbling, his lowering of himself. Being blessed with the Blessed One means being blessed with suffering. I'm reading a novel right now, and, and one of the characters is a fiery abolitionist preacher who lived during the bleeding Kansas era of history, if you're familiar with that. He lost an eye fighting for the North in the Civil War. And he tells his grandson, being blessed means being bloodied. Being blessed means being bloodied. And he's partly referring to the fact that if you look up the etymology of our English word blessing, it actually derives from an older English word, bledsien, to mark or consecrate with blood. That was how they blessed things back then, by bloodying them. Now, that's not true of the Greek word for blessing, with which Matthew uses here, but the notion, I think, squares pretty well with the principle Jesus just described. Being blessed means being bloodied. Blessed are those who are bloodied on my account. You see, the blessed one bled for us. If we would follow in his footsteps, we should expect our feet will bleed as his did. You see, but the good news is, if we are united to the blessed one and walking in his bloody footprints, we will also receive the same reward he received. The rewards described in the second half of the Beatitudes. Comfort, inheritance, satisfaction, mercy, to see God, to be called sons of God, a place in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
The people of blessing will suffer much in this life, but their reward, Jesus says, is a kingdom infinite and eternal, blessed by the presence of the Blessed One Himself. The meek will inherit the earth, and they will also inherit heaven. They will inherit the new heavens and the new earth when their Lord returns at the end of all things. And so, Jesus issues further calls to those who would be blessed, who would inherit this kingdom of heaven. Verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And in verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we apply the same interpretive principle to these sections as well. Jesus does not say these things in a vacuum. He's speaking to the people of first century Israel. You see, Israel was supposed to be the salt of the earth. Like the salt of the covenant, which God commanded be sprinkled on every grain offering given to him at his temple, so the people of Israel to be the salt of the covenant in the world. And that means that, that by their faithfulness to God and by their obedience to his word in justice and in love and in mercy, they were to give the world its flavor. They were to make the world a pleasing sacrifice to God. A pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. But as we have already described, Israel had lost their saltiness. They were no longer fulfilling that purpose for which God had called them. They were not bringing flavor to the world, but poisoning it. And according to our Lord, what do you do with salt that's not salty? The same thing you do with trees that do not bear fruit, says Jesus. And with tares which grow amidst the wheat. And with bad fish that writhe in the nets along with the good fish. What do you do with them? You cast them out. Into the fiery furnace. Into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over and over again, this is how Jesus describes the fate of the wicked throughout Matthew's Gospel. Like salt that has lost its saltiness. Good for nothing except to be thrown out. And this is the doom, the specific doom he prophesies for Israel in his last discourse, the Mount of Olives. They will be cast out of their temple and cast out of their land. Now, with regard to this second image, the light of the world, the city set on a hill, this is also referring to God's call for Israel. Isaiah 42, God said to Israel, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill that all would be drawn to. But Israel had again failed this purpose. Israel was not light, but darkness. Israel was not a house of prayer for the nations, Jesus says, but a den of robbers, of rebels who despised the nations. So Jesus comes as the true Israelite to finally fulfill the promises given Israel, which Israel had failed to take hold of. Jesus comes as the light of the world. Jesus comes as the living temple, drawing all nations to himself. Again, he is the fulfillment of these things. And so that means also that the new community that forms around Jesus will be like him in these things as well. He says his disciples will be the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Making the world a pleasing offering to the Lord by living out the Beatitudes. The disciples of Jesus will be a light for the world. They will be the city set on a hill, he says, letting their light shine before others and going out to the Gentiles in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus fulfills that calling of Israel in himself, first of all, but then he fulfills it through this new community, his church, united to him and blessed because of him. And so with all this talk of of this great reversal, what's wrong in Israel and what Jesus is coming to transform with all these images of upheaval, of, of exalted ones being humbled and humbled ones being exalted, with Jesus taking all this imagery that had applied to Israel in the Old Covenant and saying that it would now be applied to him and to his church and to this ragtag troop of fishermen and tax collectors and nobodies, what were people thinking? Does this mean Jesus is going to violate the law of God? He's going to undo everything? He's going to scrap the whole Old Testament? And so Jesus goes on in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, to many of the Jews of Jesus' day, the things that he said and the things he did felt like violations of the law. But that's because their law had become clouded by man-made traditions and customs and prejudices to the point where God's people no longer recognized the true law, the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. They did not recognize the word of God when it took on flesh among them as a living beatitude. So what Jesus says and what Jesus is doing here, it's not a violation of the Scriptures, it's a fulfillment of them. He is being and doing what Israel was called to do all along. He is the light of the world. He is the city on a hill. He is the suffering servant of the Lord who shows mercy to the lost sheep of Israel and light to the nations. And he's calling disciples to follow him And to do the same. And that's why he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The people couldn't believe their ears. We have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? 
The guys who take the law so seriously, they're tithing spices and seasonings. Right? The guys who take tiny scrolls of Torah and wrap them around their arms and around their heads because they're so devoted to this law. The guys who are our, our teachers, our pastors uh, in the synagogues and, and the people who serve at the temple and, and have authority over our whole nation. We have to be more righteous than them. But Jesus says that was all outward show. Those were cups cleaned on the outside and dirty within. Those are whitewashed tombs. Jesus is calling his disciples to the true law of God. To offer mercy and not just sacrifices. He is calling them to what has always been the true heart of the law of God and which the leaders of Israel have forgotten. And that heart is the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit. Mourning over sin. Meek humility. Hunger for righteousness. Showing mercy. Purity of heart. Peace and endurance through persecution. He calls Israel to these things. And he calls us to these same things. So I leave you with this application. I encourage you to come back to Matthew chapter 5 and to these Beatitudes throughout this week. Read over them. Meditate on them. Consider the situation, the context into which Jesus spoke them, even if just for a few minutes at a time. And you can approach it different ways. One day you could read through them and you could see them as a confession of sin. Consider the ways Israel failed to live this way in Jesus' day. And then confess the ways you yourself have failed to be salt and light. Failed to embody these Beatitudes. Use uh, the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as a confession of sin and, and seek to amend your ways. Another day, you might meditate on the second half of each Beatitude, on those rewards that are promised. And think about do you long for that comfort? Do you long to receive mercy? Do you wish to see God? Jesus promised these rewards to those who place their faith in Him. And so are you clinging to those promises in faith? Another day this week, you might read through the Beatitudes and you might consider how Jesus embodies all these things in Himself. Consider the ways Jesus is shown to be a walking beatitude in the Gospels. How did Jesus show poverty of spirit? How did Jesus show mercy? How did Jesus endure persecution? And then give Him thanks and praise for being the righteous one who received the blessing of the Father, who was crucified and raised on your behalf so that you too might enjoy the blessing of the Father, and the reward of the kingdom so that you too might become a living beatitude to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often ruled by pride and by greed and by selfish desires. Rather than having a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, we find ourselves falling into the same sins they did. 
So we praise you for sending Jesus to be a living beatitude among us, to act in true justice and mercy and love toward us for your glory and for our salvation. Give us faith to respond to his call that having been blessed in Christ, we might now be a blessing, salt and light to this world, walking beatitudes in the image of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.